In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. In the fall of 1984, my grandfather, Howard Giles Sr., passed away. And my father waited a few weeks. And after a few weeks had passed, uh, he took me with him uh, to walk up the street. We just lived a a couple uh, yards away from them. We visited my grandmother and told her that we were going to go and look for my dad's inheritance, uh, which meant that we were going into my grandfather's little workroom at the back of the carport to look for some of his tools. Uh, My grandfather uh, went through the eighth grade and at the age of 13 became a carpenter's apprentice in the coal mines of Pennsylvania, and he still had some uh, of those old woodworking tools. We dug through when we looked for some of the things um, that we were looking for and some of the things uh, we simply uh, did not find. The prophet Amos reminds me a lot of my grandfather and those that I've known throughout my life that uh, work with their hands. The prophet Amos uh, was a, uh, a working man. He was a goat herd and a tender of sycamore trees. And this comes up over and over again in his prophecy that he is a simple man and uh, doesn't understand that the Lord would call him for this uh, mighty task. Indeed, there are many things mighty about the prophet Amos. He's probably the first recorded of the prophets, uh, one of the oldest of the prophets. In his lifetime as a youth, he probably knew the prophet Elisha. And in his old age, he probably knew Jonah and the prophet Isaiah. And so he spans this incredible period of the great prophets of the nation of Judah. And he's prophesying about the northern kingdom of Israel. You'll remember that the northern kingdom of Israel has separated. There's been a civil war. And they are uh, raising up for themselves kings out of the tribe of Ephraim. And Ephraim, you'll remember, is one of the half-tribes. Instead of a tribe of Joseph, uh, we have the two tribes of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So the Ephraimites are there in that kingdom just above Judah. And so when we read about the promise to Joseph, that's what Amos is talking about. He's identifying the promise of Joseph made to Ephraim and Manasseh. And of course, the promise is the covenant that the Lord has made with them. And we recognize that that covenant is a a relationship. The covenant that the Lord has with us isn't, I'm going to give you something and then there's nothing required of you. That isn't the relationship that he's described. The relationship, the covenant bond that he has with his people is, I'll be your God and you will be my people. So there's a relationship that the Lord is establishing that requires a response by the people of God. And the response, Amos is saying, is something that they've been failing in upholding. Uh, The prophet Amos says they have to uh, do two major things in their response to the Lord, and they're about the inheritance that they've promised. The first thing is they have to seek God. They have to look for him. Just like my dad and I in that, in that uh, small work closet, you don't just go in and open up the door and look, and then if you don't see what you're looking for, close the door, right? We all know people like that that don't really search or don't really practice in searching. To really be a searcher, to be somebody who's really investigative and is really digging in, it takes practice, doesn't it? And so the prophet Amos is saying we need to be practiced in seeking God. We need to really spend time looking for him in our lives. We need to be looking 
looking for Him in the reading of Scripture. We need to be looking for Him in our daily prayer. We need to be looking for Him when we're driving and we're going to work and we're in school. We need to be constantly searching and seeking for the Lord. Where is the Lord in this place? Where is He leading? What is the Lord doing? So we need to be about seeking the Lord. And the the response to this, the response to seeking the Lord is that we will live. That's the result. That's the consequence of seeking the Lord is that we will have life because he is life it's not like we're standing in line and the lord is handing out life and we just get some life and we go away but when we're with him when we're seeking him we have him and he is life and so then the prophet amos says uh, down in verse 14 he says uh, that if we seek good if we seek good then we will again we will live and the lord will be with us This is very important, that we will live and the Lord will be with us. Because we live in a culture and a time and place that has subscribed to what you might call an Epicurean way of life. This is a Greek philosophy that says, heaven is way out there. Heaven is way above us, and we're way down here. It's kind of an upstairs-downstairs cosmology, right? Heaven is this place where we're all going to go someplace else, and uh, we're leaving, right? And, uh, and then we're all down here. And there's a separation, there's a distance between this far off heaven and this place on earth. Except that isn't how the prophets describe the Lord and his dwelling with us at all. He's saying that here and now in our midst, when we're seeking the Lord and we're seeking his good, then we will be with him. He will be with us here now he's not far away he's with us he's imminent he's building his his tabernacle with us he's tabernacling dwelling with us so we will live and have life when we seek good and seek justice when justice is something that we're uh, really uh, desiring when we're really looking for it when we're really uh, uh, practicing in our daily lives uh, to look for that inheritance Of course, this is what the rich young ruler comes and he asks Jesus. He's asking specifically about inheritance, right? He says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So the rich young ruler has this understanding that God is his father and that there's a goodly inheritance that's been promised him, right? There's a covenant relationship uh, that he needs to have. And uh, Jesus, you'll notice, doesn't send him away and say, oh, there's nothing you can do to get that inheritance. Just say a prayer or just believe in me and go away. He doesn't say that, does he? He brings to mind for the rich young ruler the commandments. What do the commandments do? They establish for us the way in which we will dwell with God. Right? We summarize. Love God and love your neighbor. When we're in love with God and we're loving our neighbor, we don't need to hear, don't murder him. Right? If we're loving our neighbor, if we're desiring good things for him, if we want him to have a good life and we want him to have blessings, the idea of of hurting him would be anathema, would be the farthest thing from us. When we love our neighbor and we want him to have a, a wonderful wife and a wonderful family, we want him to have beautiful children, we want him to have a great job, we want him to have all kinds of wealth and good things, the idea about taking things away from him would be ridiculous, right? We've been praying and loving and and asking the Lord to give him good things. So that loving God and loving our neighbor is a way in which the commandments get fulfilled. And the rich young ruler says, these things I have done. And then Jesus, out of his love for him, out of his love for him, says, now give away all that you have. 
Now, this blows away the rich young man. This leaves him destitute because he's very rich. Uh, But it also strikes to the heart of the apostles. You notice that they're left saying, well, then who can be saved? What is it that they hear? Sometimes we expect them to say, well, I'm broke, so I'll go to heaven, right? That's not what they say at all, do they? They say, well, then who can be saved? What is it that the apostles are hearing? A couple of things. Number one, their understanding of wealth was that it's a result of righteousness. If you go back and you look through the Old Testament and the life of the the great leaders of the nation of Israel, if you look at Abraham, he's a wealthy prince. If you look at Moses, he has great wealth. If you look at at, uh, Isaac and Jacob, if you look at King David and Solomon, you realize that they have... uh, great wealth and power and so the idea that uh that abraham who has this wealth wouldn't go to heaven is striking at the heart of their understanding of the relationship to god and his blessing those that he loves blessing those that are faithful but of course what jesus is saying here is that if you've got anything that's going to be hard for you to give up if you've got anything that's going to come between you and seeking god then that thing has to be gotten rid of See, he's opening it up for anything really that's going to come between us and the Lord. And now we realize this isn't just money and possessions, which it can definitely be, but it's the habits of our mind, what it is that we think about, what we do with our imaginations, what we do with our hobbies, what we do with the free time that we have. What is it that we're doing that's keeping us from seeking God? What have we put in the place of God? What have we been seeking other than him? And as soon as we look at that and we say, there are things that in my life that I've been seeking other than God, we realize that's what's going to keep us from inheriting eternal life. That's what's going to keep us from entering into his kingdom because we're going to be uh, entering into the kingdom of those things, of those habits, of those ideas of our imagination. We're not going to be entering into the kingdom of love and life. And then the apostles rightly say, well, then who can be saved? Because who is able to have that, what Jesus calls in the Beatitudes, that purity of heart, right? You remember that from Matthew chapter five, he says, the pure in heart will inherit, right? Because those are the the people that are able to uh, dwell on and will one thing, to will the will of God. And who can be that pure? Who can have that, that pure of a will? And then Jesus says, it's not possible you can't do it you can't but for God all things are possible for God all things are possible so now we come to understand that God is making it possible he is the one through the power of his Holy Spirit that is continually washing us and that is breaking away the hardness of our heart the Holy Spirit is enlivening our minds and enlivening our spirits and breaking away those old habits and things that would keep us from seeking God and allow us to be focused upon him and upon the promise of our inheritance and the writer of the letter to the Hebrews focuses on this he focuses on this um, this relationship that we have to have with the Lord this this focus and the purity of our heart and and he tells us in in Hebrews chapter 3 uh, the things that we have to do some of the things that we have to do to have that focus and I'll just tell you if you're looking for a summary of uh, the Old Testament and the new uh, I don't think you can find a better place than the letter to the Hebrews 
The letter to the Hebrews does a beautiful job of summarizing for us in just a few short chapters uh, the life of the nation of Israel and the promise of Christ and how he is fulfilling that promise. And the, the letter to the Hebrews also brings in for us this vision of God dwelling with us. He has this, this plan for us about dwelling. And he says Christ has been faithful over the house. He's been far more faithful than Moses. He's been more faithful because he's the architect and builder of the house. So he's not the keeper of the house the way Moses was. He's not a, a servant of the house the way Moses does. He is the architect and the builder of the house of God. And then he tells us something boldly radical, again, that should reshape the way that we think of, of the cosmos and the relationship of the cosmic order in God. He says that we are that house. We are the house of God. Isn't that amazing? We are the dwelling place. We're the tabernacle. His Holy Spirit dwells within each of us and we become living stones shaped perfectly by Him to build up this dwelling place. So in our hearts and as we gather together, we become built up as living stones, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God. He has fashioned and designed our lives so that we can fit perfectly into this dwelling place for Him. And he says that we are his house if. Don't you love that word? This is a very important theological word, right? There should be lots of books written about this word, if, right? He says we will be the dwelling place of God. We will be his house if we hold fast in our confidence. Hold fast is another one of these terms. We read hold fast or stand firm over and over and over again. It reminds me of that wonderful uh, Russell Crowe movie, Master and Commander, right? And the sailor on that ship is there in the Atlantic and they go around to the Pacific and he's this old sea dog and he has tattooed on his knuckles, hold on one hand and fast on the other, right? Hold fast. Why does he have that? Because that ship, that tiny ship, Bobbing in the middle of this great ocean is England. It's his home. And he's living his life up in the rigging that's swaying back and forth over the sea. And if he doesn't hold fast to that rigging, what's going to happen? He'll go overboard and drown. Brothers and sisters, we are in a ship called the church and we are at sea. And there is a storm. If you haven't noticed, there is a storm. And we don't get to be mad that there's a storm we don't get to be naive and say, oh, there's a storm. We don't get to say there's never been a storm before, or this is the worst storm there's ever been. We don't know any of that. All we know is that we're at ship, we're at sea, and there's a storm. And that our job is to do what? Hold fast. Hold fast to Christ and to His ship, the church. And when we do that, we meet it with one other peace. This is, this is the faithfulness of Christ, right? The faithfulness. That is to see the things of God and to do them, right? See them and do them. That's how uh, complex faith is, right? To see and do the things of God. We also have to have hope. The writer of the Hebrews says we're supposed to boast in our hope. What is hope? If faith is to see the things in God and do them, hope is the attitude with which we do those things. Because it's not just enough that we do it. We don't get to be recalcitrant and say, Okay, Lord, I'll, I'll go to church. I'll encourage other people. 
I'll seek justice. We don't get to do it like that. The Lord wants a change in our hearts. He wants us to, as he says again in the Beatitudes, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we hunger and we thirst, we have a deep desire for the things of God. That's hope. Hope is when we have a deep desire for the things of God, when we're yearning. We're yearning for the things of God. We're hoping for His day to come. We're hoping to live in His house. We're desiring to be with Him. This is a kind of seeking that's at all costs. And when we have a seeking for an inheritance at all costs, the idea that we're going to let stuff, that we're going to let property, that we're going to let prestige, that we're going to let hobbies keep us between us and the, the faithfulness of God is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Because we have a true hunger and a thirst and a knowledge of the safety that we have in this ship, the church, and in our life in Christ. So my dad and I went through every drawer. We found some cool hand drills, a couple of cool saws, some chisels, an old wood plane, Amos's plumb line, with the chalk line inside of it. My grandfather, like many men in the Depression, changed trades. And he became a millwright. And they moved to Henderson in 1952 so that he could be a millwright at Titanium. And he would get called in the middle of the night when the engines of the mill would stop. And the supervisors would call for a man to go out in the middle of the night to repair the machinery. And as we're walking back from my grandfather's house, <laughs> um, my dad talked about when he was growing up, all the times that work called in the middle of the night. And he said they would always call my dad because when they called the other guys, they'd get their wives to lie and say that they weren't home. And my dad said even at 10 or 12 years old, I realized how awful it was that you would get your wife to lie and that you'd rather have your boss think that you weren't home at 2 o'clock in the morning than actually go to work. And he said, my dad's willingness to go to work not only was a testament to his virtue and truth to say, yes, I'm here and I'm willing to do the job at hand, but he said it blessed our family. We had benefits because of his hard work and his earnings that are still with us today and have made a foundation for our family. And that's the inheritance that we really got. And that's the inheritance that the Lord would have for us today if we would only seek. If we would only seek Him and His faith and His hope. And we would hold fast to this dwelling place that we may be one with him this day and forevermore.